two weeks ago, we did Psalm 23. And one thing we said about Psalm 23 is that it is the purest psalm of trust in the whole book of Psalms. There's not one request in Psalm 23. It is just one long description of trust in the Lord. David calls him, the Lord is my shepherd. I like nothing. And he just continues there in that psalm. Then Psalm 24, if you remember, this was last week, we get this expanded understanding of who this God is with whom David will dwell forever and ever. He is a God who is creator. He is holy. He's glorious. And now as we step into Psalm 25, we come up into a psalm of trust again. Almost like Psalm 24 is is bookended by two psalms of trust. But Psalm 25 not only is this, this expression of trust To the God of Israel, it also woven into this psalm of trust is a request to God. And it's in those requests embedded in this psalm of trust where we're going to find some application. Maybe some application that steps on our toes along the way. But hopefully it'll help us right when we get to the end. So we'll step in. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can um, turn to Psalm 25. I'm reading now the New International Version. And rather than read this whole psalm just all in one one big swoop, we're going to actually walk through this psalm uh, section by section. Now, something we can't see in the English that's in the Hebrew is this is an acrostic, which means each line starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, going in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, There are some psalms that do this. Psalm 119 is another famous acrostic, this real long psalm that just follows the alphabet. So if it was in English, the first line would start with an A. The first letter of the first line would start with an A. The next one B. next one C. We can't see that uh, in, in English, but in the Hebrew, that's the way David has set up the psalm. And some think he sets the psalm up that way as a way of teaching. It's a way of teaching for memorization so that you could walk through the psalm memorizing along the way because you know each line starts with the first letter of that uh, uh, of the of the the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But we don't see it here. But just note there's some repetition and there's some repetition for the purpose of being able to hold it in the mind. There's something here that I think is going to speak to us in our day. Psalm 25, we'll pick up these first three verses. David writes, In you, Lord, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. So right out of the gate, this psalm starts with a declaration of trust. Twice in these first lines, he uses the word trust. I trust you. David here sounds, there are echoes here of previous psalms we've looked at. So when I hit this psalm this week, I thought, I feel like I've heard that before. We've seen David do it, do it this way. And then I just flipping back through my Bible, notice Psalms 7, 11, and 16, David begins his song, uh, his prayer and song by declaring his trust to God. Just want you to see an example of that. Psalm 7, here's how he begins Psalm 7. Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. The psalm begins with a declaration, you are my refuge. I put my refuge in you. Very similar to Psalm 25, 
in you I put my trust. And so there are the outlines of some of the previous psalms we've already looked at. And in the same way, David here has something to say about his enemies. He's asking, God, do not put me to shame. Don't let them put me to shame. And we sometimes think of shame as something internal. This is not an internal feeling. It's not just feeling bad. Shame here is a public embarrassment where David is going to be exposed for something, most likely falsely, and he will be embarrassed among the people. And David says, don't let that happen. Don't let them publicly shame me. Don't let them publicly embarrass me. Don't let them bring falsehoods against me and make my name mud among the people. Like, God, don't let them do it. I trust in you. But as we've seen in previous psalms, we might think at this point, the rest of this psalm is going to be all about David's enemies. But the heartbeat of David's prayer moving forward and this declaration of trust actually is not centered around the threat of David's enemies outside of him. What we will find is that the threat is actually inside of him. Here's how he moves forward. Move into verse 4. Verse 4 through 7. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Two themes. There are two themes that run through these four verses that are going to set the stage for the rest of the psalm. Two things. The first is this. David now enters into his petition to God, and he's asking God, and he says it with three different words. Show, teach, and guide. He's saying, God, lead me. Lead me. Now remember, Psalm 25 sits in, in close contact with Psalm 23. And I hope you already hear the echoes of Psalm 23. Remember 23, Psalm 23, verses 2 through 3? He leads me. He guides me. This God in whom David puts his trust is a God who guides, he leads. And here David in Psalm 25 is, is, adds a layer by using uh, uh, two new words, show and teach. David wants to be led by God. And why? Because David knows he doesn't know everything. He doesn't have it all figured out. And so he's going to the one that does. The God of Israel's got it figured out. The God of Israel knows where things are going. He's the one in control. You teach me your way. But it's not just that David believes God knows how to keep his people on the right path. David also was asking that God would lead him because he knows that he desperately needs forgiveness along the way. David doesn't, knows that he doesn't just, doesn't just not know everything. David also knows he's messed up pretty big up to this point in his life. And he needs God's help. And he needs God's forgiveness. And David is confident that God will forgive even in all of his rebellion, all of his stupid mess-ups, God, uh, David knows God will be faithful to forgive him and wipe his sins away. And why would David know that? It's not just some arbitrary wish. It's not just hopeful, you know, it's not some hopeful dream that maybe one day God will forgive him. David has confidence God will forgive him. 
based on two things. It's rooted in verse 6. Check this out. He, he's got two reasons he knows God will forgive him. The first is based on who God is. He says, remember, Lord, your great mercy and love. David knows God will forgive him because of who God is. God is full of mercy and love. And right there in that word love, sitting behind that word love in the English, is that Hebrew word that we keep coming back to. There's the word hesed. There's the Hebrew word hesed. It's the word often translated unfailing love. Mercy in the King James Version, that's how it's translated there. Abounding love. It is this word that most defines who God is. God doesn't let go of His people. He just isn't some arbitrary God who has some temper that flares up now and then and you just never know where you stand with Him. God holds on to His people. It's a covenant love. And when He's locked in, He's locked in. If you remember, when God describes himself to Moses in the fullest description up to that point in the Bible. At the center of the description is the word hesed. Here it is, Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7. This is where God describes himself most fully up to this point in the Bible. He says to Moses, we get this description. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, Abounding in love. There's the Hebrew word hesed. Abounding in hesed and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. David here, as he calls out to God, declaring his trust in God, knowing that God will forgive his rebellion and all of his wayward behavior, he knows God will forgive him because he knows who God is. And no doubt David here inserts this hyperlink back to Exodus 34. This is the God abounding in Hesed. Covenant love. He doesn't let go. This is good news for who God is. Now it's not just also that I think David knew the passage. David also knows that God's been doing this ever since, the create, ever, ever since humans uh, were created. God has demonstrated Hesed. And this is why David says this. It's not just who God is. Look at verse 6 again. He says, "Remember, just remember who you are, God. But then he knows, David knows, that this mercy and hesed, it's from of old. God has been doing it for a long time. And there are a lot of different examples we could use, right? Like God rescuing his people out of Egypt is this massive, massive example of God holding on to his people and not forgetting them, even in the midst of darkness. But there's this other example. It's one of my, one of, one of my like, maybe top 20 pat, uh, verses out of Deuteronomy. If you ask me what the other 19 are, I don't know. I just felt like that felt good, like top 20. It was my, like my top 20, uh, Deuteronomy 7. Check this out. Look at how, look at the description of who God is. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you. This is to Israel. He did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more, norm, more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to his ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
God did not choose Israel because Israel was beautiful or powerful. Why did God choose His people? Because He did. He chose His people and then He stayed faithful to the oath He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the God who makes a promise and keeps the promise. This is a God abounding in hesed. And so as David here in this prayer and song is declaring his trust, begging God for forgiveness, that he would show him the right way to go and along the way would forgive him as he sins, David knows God will fulfill all of this. Because this is who God is and this is what God has been doing from the beginning. He can take that to the bank. And these two themes, humility, being led by God, and God's forgiveness, these two themes, well, they just are going to be woven into the rest of Psalm 25. I think of it like a remix tape. Like, literally, we're just going to have a remix on these two themes for the rest of the psalm. And so what I want to do is just walk through it section by section, just, just seeing variations on these two themes, and along the way, we're just going to highlight a few things. And then we're going to come to some application. That's going to have something to say to me and you where we live today. Here it is. We'll pick up verse 8. Here we begin a variation on those themes. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. So in these three verses, we just have a variation, a remix on, on David's prayer for God's leading in verses set four through seven. And what we see here is that he's just real explicit here. It's the humble that God will lead. And why would it be the humble that God leads? Because a humble person knows they don't have it all figured out and they need help. That's why God leads the humble. And you, you, we know the, the other side of the coin on this. It's the proud who will never be led by God. They have no need for God. They've got it all figured out. They'll do what they want, when they want, and it'll be right. If you remember, and I think here we have an echo back into one of our previous psalms we looked at. Psalm 10, verse 4. So who are the proud? In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. So why would the proud never seek God's guidance, there's no room in the, in, in the wicked man's mind for God because they've got it all worked out. And so it is the humble who are led by God. So, so it, is those, it, it, it is those people that realize they're not the center of the universe, they don't have it all right, and they mess up a lot. Those are the people God's in the business of leading. And those are the people God's bringing into his friendship. Because those are, the, those are the kind of people that want God. We move forward. Another revision, another variation on where we've already been. Verse 11. We just read verse 11. It's such a clear statement. He writes this. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And here I can almost just walk with David through his journey as he writes the psalm. Because in verse 4 through 7, he's asking God's forgiveness for all the iniquity of his past, particularly his youthful years. And who doesn't have sins in their youth they need lots of forgiveness for? But it's not just sin in your youth. 
David here has no mention of his youth. Would you just forgive my iniquity now? And it's great. We don't know when David wrote it, but David feels the weight of his sin. And there's a couple things that stand out. David's not playing loose with sin. There's not, he's not talking about a white lie. Sin is sin. It is rebellion to God. And he is understanding himself in light of God's holiness. His sin is great. It's not inconsequential. It needs forgiving. The other thing that's going on here is David here is contrasting his sin with the magnificence of God's forgiveness. And so as he has, as he has been reflecting on the great mercy of God, he understands his sin is great. But when you put your sin in the light of God's immense, amazing grace, it will always be outshone. God's grace goes farther and deeper than any sin we have ever and will ever commit. And that is really good news. And so David here understands that God's mercy outweighs his sin. But he sure does feel it. So he moves on. We just move on into this next variation on these themes. Verse 12. Who then are those who fear the Lord? Who will instruct them in the ways they should choose? They will spend their days in prosperity. Their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for, he, for only He will release my feet from the snare. Again, I think you see the variation. There's something, again, about God teaching, guiding. And here, we don't see the word humility. David now adds this extra layer of description. The humble are those who fear the Lord. Who fear the Lord. One commentator had a really concise definition of fearing the Lord. i just bring it forward here. Fear the Lord is this. He writes this. Fear the Lord is an attitude that acknowledges one's absolute dependence on the Lord for mercy, forgiveness, and continued existence. It's an acknowledgement that without God, we do not exist. We do not move forward in life in any meaningful way. He is our sustainer. He is the one that shows great mercy because we understand we sure do need mercy. Like, man, if only we could feel that. There's a story that maybe illustrates this. It's the story of, uh, of two men. One understands, comes to God, understands their need for forgiveness. The other comes to God thinking they've got it all worked out. And at some level, God actually owes them something. Jesus told the story this way, Luke 18. Maybe you remember it. He said this, told the story this way, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. To some who were, uh, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went out to pray, uh, went, out, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Well, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves, well, they will be exalted. This description here, Psalm 25, as we move forward in verses 12 through 15, this, this 
this description of those that fear the Lord, this is the kind of person that would go to God like the tax collector and say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. That's the person who fears the Lord because they understand they're not perfect. They don't have it worked out. And to whatever extent they move forward in their next step, it is only God who is sustaining them. Man, if only we could feel that. But here the tax collector does. The person you would least expect. That's the person who fears the Lord. David here wants to move in light of that person. He wants to be the kind of person that would fear the Lord. And I think maybe, maybe at this point you're, you're sensing the movement of David's mind and heart. A man who has started this song of prayer with, I trust you. And then he has moved to this place of asking God to lead and forgive. And I think as he's moved forward in this prayer, he's feeling more and more the weight of that sin. He just he feels it. And so as he gets to the end, he really brings forward this variation on where we've already been. He brings it forward with the most light we've seen on this part of, uh, part of the psalm, this one theme. So we pick up verse 16 through 22. We end the psalm this way. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Here we see David moving very similar to what we were seeing him pray in verses 4 through 7. We again see David having something to say about his enemies, not being allowed to shame him. But what takes most attention here is David begging God. Take away, right? Take away my loneliness, my affliction, my anguish, and my distress. And yet David adds here something that we really need to make sure we pick up. It's a layer of the prayer that I think he's finally moved to that we better be able to grab onto. And that is his affliction and loneliness and distress. Well, these are not just caused by enemies from the outside. These are caused by his own sins. You see, sin will do great damage to a life. And David understands that some of the issues, some of the problems, some of the loneliness and distress and anguish and affliction, and which of us have never had any of that? It's not just caused by someone outside of himself. Those things are the result of his own sin. David is his worst enemy. And man, we better pick that up. Because how often do we blame everybody else and never look in the mirror? David understands that a lot of his problems are because of his sins. And so he begs God, take them away. Forgive me for what I have done wrong. Because his loneliness and affliction and distress, some of that is caused by his own sin. And so Paul will eventually say that very thing. He'll just say it really concisely, right? Because when you think about like loneliness and becoming hollow inside, we even use the language of dying 
Sometimes because of our own secret sins, trying to hide, spinning lies, trying our best to get away with what we should not be allowed to get away with. Well, Paul says it this way. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But here's the cool thing, right? The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you sin, you'll get paid. It will be paid in death. That's what you get. That's what you get. That's your wage. You'll die inside. But if you come to the one who abounds in mercy and love, you get life. Now, here's what's so cool. Is that eventually, at some point, we don't know when, but it is put later in the book of Psalms, David pens a reflection on everything he's just talked about in Psalm 25. And when he thinks about being led by God and all of God's forgiveness, here's what he says. I think maybe you've heard these verses before. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's the gospel. Where do you get that fulfilled? Who brings that promise forward into everyday life? Jesus, the anointed one. That's the hope. David knows it. So this prayer of trust that runs these two themes of humility and forgiveness, well, they, I think they have a lot to say to us. And so as I reflected on how that gets down into everyday life, I got three questions that were hitting me. Three questions. These are tough ones. At least they were for me. I mean, you might be callous and not even listening. So, it doesn't matter to you. But if you are, and you're breathing, maybe they'll hit you too. Here you go. First question comes to my mind is this. What troubles are in my life? Not because of someone or something hurting me, but because of my own sins. I'm thinking here of those secret sins that you don't want anyone to know. And you keep them stuffed down, you keep those thoughts stuffed down, you keep those secret emotions, feelings, or behavior stuffed down, and you're hiding it, and you're putting a lot of energy to hide it, that will eat your life. And so sometimes, your problems are because of your sins. And it will be easy to blame your boss. And it will be easy to complain about work. And it will be easy to complain about your neighbor. And they will give you ample ammunition for all of it. But a lot of times, our emotional angst is caused by no one else but ourselves. And so let me go with another way to ask this, right? So I thought this wasn't enough. I wanted to ask it even more bluntly. Here's another way you could ask that question. When I think about the problems in my life, from anxiety to loneliness to debt to broken relationships... Is it always someone or something else's fault? I got to tell you, I love my perspective sometimes because I can see some of you, your eyes, you're doing this. And I've seen some of you move your bodies to your, your significant other. That's what I was going for. You're welcome, Kenneth. You're welcome. You, you tell Sonia this was for her, okay? I had you in mind. 
You just tell her it's biblical. You say, honey, it's biblical. I have two spare rooms at my house. You just take your pick. All right? All right. But seriously, seriously, are you the kind of person, and I think all of us can get to this place where if you listen to yourself, it's everybody else's fault. But what we need to do is look in the mirror. Listen, teenagers are a problem. You and I know it. But do you know who the bigger problem is in our house? It's the parent, right? What's the sin in your child that you hate the most? The one that you got in yourself. What's the problem with the kid? They're like this massive mirror that keeps showing you who you are. So if you punish them enough, obviously it'll go away. It never does. Or, right, or you blame, you blame, it can go a number of directions. You blame your coworker. You blame your superiors. You blame society. You blame the government. This is the great problem with all this social justice talk. Not that we don't need to deal with problems in society, but be very careful because in our day, it becomes everybody else's fault and you get to play the victim card. No, no human being gets to play the victim card. So just seriously consider, are you the kind of person that just complains all the time about everyone and everything else? This gets close to home because I know even in myself, this is what I do. I need the Bible to reveal this to me. And I, I, this is not an easy one for me. Next question is this that really spurs my thinking. When was the last time I actually stopped and thought about the amazing grace of God in Jesus? You see what I'm doing there? I'm not saying I don't think. Like, I know God's grace is amazing. But when have I given it the attention? Like, literally just sat and thought about all that I am and what I have done. And I think about all that God has done. Like, just literally giving it some attention. Let me tell you how easy it is to just become complacent. So Elena Crow painted this uh, for me uh, a while ago. I've shown it several times. This picture of the cross, we have it up on our mantle. Uh, it's this beautiful painting causing me to reflect on the cross. And every once in a while, I'll look at that painting and realize I haven't looked at that painting in quite a while. It literally sits in our family room all the time. And I walk by it all the time. And it's only every once in a while that I finally look and reflect on my sin and what God has done. If you're like me, you've probably had some a similar experience. Jesus, there's nothing new about Jesus. I doubt it. Like, I think all of you in this room know about his amazing grace. But when have we stopped for it to become unfamiliar? And I think we need a sense of awe. You know, the problem is I don't think it's with the cross. I think it's with me. I think it's my problem. The novelty wears off and I don't feel the weight of my sin. I just keep going and I walk by that painting as if everything's normal. I think the reason we're going to be singing about Jesus and his cross forever and ever is not because I feel it. It's because I think that my sin is so deep and I am so blind that I cannot feel what he has actually done. And I've only had glimpses of it in my life. And so I'm praying regularly, God, help me feel what you have done so that I may stand in all of you. But it's not a problem with the cross. It's a problem with my heart. So maybe take a moment, stop, and just literally think on the amazing grace of God. Let it become a little unfamiliar. Last question is this. 
who or what is guiding my life? Really? This isn't who you wish was guiding your life. I mean, look at your life. Who's guiding it? We're in a world right now where feelings are guiding most people. If you feel it, it's right, so I should do it. That is never a good guide for your life. And so the question is, who's guiding your life? Because someone or something's going to guide your life. And the point here is to let God lead your life. And so you have to do things that help get you in place where you can hear God. Coming to church is one of them. Reading the Bible is one of them. Being around God's people is one of them. We need help. And so we need to be guided by someone other than ourselves. Or bad influences that might be surrounding you, whatever that is. All right. So I thought about these three questions, and man, they have been, um, they, they've annoyed me at some level because they're convicting. And I thought, well, what would you do? Like, what is something you and I can do that might help us move forward with seeing God for who He is, asking for forgiveness? Like, I mean, just coming to a place where we can take on the, the heartbeat of Psalm 25. And this is kind of where I landed, and I just started doing it this week. It's really this simple. And I don't mean it to be over-spiritual. Don't take this as spiritual. Just take this as really practical. It's this. Each day, out loud, ask God for help. Literally. So, like, if you're struggling with patience, with whatever might be happening in your day, just say, God, would you help me with patience right now? Like, it doesn't have to be a fancy, well-worded prayer. Just say, God, could you help me? Help me. And then let God move. I don't know what God's going to do. Like, I don't think if you say, God, I need money. Help me. Like, I don't think it's just going to pop up in your hands. God will give us what we need, but ask for help. I couldn't help but think of Carol Sita this week and Grace Revis. You guys know, most of you know, they both had procedures in the last week, and they've been in a lot of pain on the, on the other side of those procedures and I couldn't help but think that for Grace, that she's in this neck brace, this, this operation that on her spinal cord um, and her vertebrae. And she's sitting in bed very immobile. <laughs> she can't move very much. Lots of pain, frustrated. Her prayer in that moment is, God, help me endure. Help me endure. Nothing fancy about it. Just help me get to the next hour. And then help me get to the next hour. Like that's the prayer. Same thing for Carol. It was a simple prayer. Was able to be with her many times. Trudy and I crossed paths many times in the hospital. And for Carol, it's a simple prayer. Help me get through this. Help heal me. And for Carol, it is help me get to the next hour. It's nothing fancy. Literally, so just say it out loud. Like, don't just make this an internal thing. Say it out loud. God, help me. I don't know what you need help with. But if we start asking God for help, you know what you'll begin to train your heart and mind with? The reality that you don't know everything. And you're not in control. That's the place David, that's the place David was, was at when he was able to pen by inspiration Psalm 25. So, ask for help this week. Let's pray. God, we need help in a lot of ways. So help us in all the ways we need it. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.